In 2016, one man heard about the neighborhood kids getting assaulted by the predators in the area. He decided to go through the sex offender registry and take justice into his own hands. The justice for the Alaskan Avenger will be served, but many people today will disagree with his sentence compared to the one of the sex offenders he harmed. Who was Jason Vukovic and what were his motives? Well, if it isn't the by all means necessary gang that I'm so comfortable with. I don't know why I'm deciding to share this with you. It's probably because I'm like touching my face for the umpteenth time this day. Um, So don't, if you already aren't, which many of you probably will not be, especially if you are... Uh, of a of a of a girl nature. Where is this going? <laughs> what the fuck? Don't use razor blades on your face. This is your host Maya. This is by all means necessary, and this is what I have learned the hard way. Cause boy, the the hair comes back all spiky, just like with your legs, just like with everywhere. It's like shaving. Okay, it is the nature of shaving. Okay, <laughs> so. This is the last vigilante case. Wait, why, why Why was there an intro like that? Was there a point to it? No. This is the last vigilante topic, okay? And then we are done with it. This means that there is an opportunity for you to offer the next topic, the next three cases, the niche. Can we speak today, Maya? It is very hard. It is very difficult. <laughs> what episode is this? Like 100 and something and you still can't speak into this fucking microphone. Point of that line that went nowhere means you have the time to boss me around. Tell me what other free cases I should be focusing on. But now, let me not drive this narrative of why you shouldn't shave your face in the most illogical way ever. Rather, you should, you know, spend on a wax and stuff. Does everybody have, like, a traumatizing story of you seeing the way your parents used to, like, shave either, like, the upper lip or, you know, just, like, their legs and stuff? Or is this just people from the Balkans? My mom, because this is a very niche story, she used to have a beauty salon, right? So, like, she kind of, once she closed it, took, like, majority of the equipment. My house looked all strange. But she had that little waxing thing, like, an actual fucking wax that then you can heat up. So she used to do that, like, every few weeks for her, like, upper lip and stuff. Yeah, and uh, her crotch area. At least I'm traumatized, that's it. You didn't, that was TMI. You did not have to share that. Now everybody's, <laughs> everybody's mom's crotch is in their head. Are you okay? No, it's not. Your own mom's crotch is in other people's heads, which is somehow even more disturbing. Bruh, where is this topic going? Okay, so. <laughs> vigilante, last vigilante case going strong, going strong of the month. Everybody skip to this next timestamp on the screen. Picture this. This is a foreign concept for the people in the United of Kingdom. But you start going through the sex offender registry that is publicly available to the whole country. Which means, yes, that we are talking about an American case today. According 
to charging documents, he told police he found information about his victims on the state's sex offender registry. It's something anyone can do. Names, pictures, addresses, it's all there online, including the place where this man lives. So the guy hit me in the head six times. Wesley Demarest is one of several men Vukovic is accused of assaulting. I figured he was going to kill me. He says Vukovic broke into his home in the middle of the night and beat his head with a hammer. He said, I'm going to, I'm an avenging angel. I'm going to mete out justice for the people you hurt. Once the protagonist of this story today would find these names, the pictures, the addresses of the sex offenders, all available to him online for free, he would break into their homes, say that he was an avenging angel, and beat his victims with a hammer. These would be the real events that took place in 2016, including one of his victims called Wesley Demeret, who was 67 years old and the only one who we have a bit of an interview with. Of course, his face is completely concealed during this interview. And as Jason's victim, who, again, bear in mind, is a sex offender, explained, a hammer smashed a glass on one of the windows of his home. Then, once Jason broke in, he went into his room, he woke Wesley up and asked him if he thought he had paid for his crime. Once Wesley, who spent nine months in jail for his crime, answered yes, Jason then said, no, you didn't pay enough. Wesley would say everything else that happened that night was a blur. He just knows he woke up lying on the ground in the pool of his own blood. He then remembers the paramedics coming in and him being taken out of his own house on a stretcher, and he received five blows to the head. This will be Jason Vukovic's third attack, and a lot of you will believe that this is well-deserved. Why is this in any way, shape, or form even the case you would consider covering? Why is it so controversial? Why do people have differing opinions on it? online. It is a vigilante case, yes, but a lot of you will believe that Jason Vukovic took the justice in his own hands, justifiably so, because he is technically threatening, beating up, getting sex offenders, known sex offenders, into these positions, harming them the way that they have harmed their own victims. And a lot of you will wish that he continued with his crimes, but as mentioned, this will be his final attack on sex offenders. And because Jason didn't just beat his victim Wesley here, but also has stolen some personal items, including a computer or a few, this was of course reported and the police managed to track him down. But before we go into the aftermath of the events and how this played out, who is Jason Vukovic and how did he get here? If you by any chance know my last name, you probably know that he is probably originally, rather his family, is from my ends. I couldn't find this confirmed 100% anywhere, like there's not that much information on his parents, but a lot of people believe that he is from Serbia, from where I am at myself, and they believe that because apparently Yugoslavia and Serbia and all of those countries that were a part of Yugoslavia in the past have a specific history with Alaska, which will be where Jason would be born. 
I have found different articles online stating when in particular Serbs and Montenegrins and people from the Yugoslavian region have actually started migrating to Alaska. And it is said that the earliest days of migrations were in the 19th century. That sometimes either it would happen during Klondike gold rush in the late 1890s, basically they would be moving towards Alaska in order to seek fortune, or that it was done even earlier during California gold rush. And these would be miners moving towards Alaska, they would be creating their own communities, building their own churches, everything along those lines. So by the First World War, there were two Serbian societies that would be established in different parts of Alaska called Juno and Douglas. And basically they would be again making sure that the Orthodox churches are in place in order to preserve the Serbian-Russian customs and heritage over in Alaska. This would mean that by the 1930s and 40s, all of those immigrants that came from Yugoslavia, mainly from Serbia and Montenegro, they would own a bunch of businesses in Alaska and during the world wars rather in between them from what I could find online the Serbian Alaskan men would sometimes even return back home in order to find women to marry and then bring them back to Alaska to start families. I'm not sure if this is Jason's parents love story as we will learn very soon it didn't last long whatever it was. But generations later the Vukovic family would step away from the original church, the original community that people have tried to establish for decades to come. Jason was born in Anchorage in Alaska in 1974. And we don't really know about the marriage situation when he was born. I have read in only one article that his dad actually left when he was young and his mom would remarry, so we will know the rest of that story. But in this article, I've read that he actually, rather his whole family, would return from missionary expeditions. And this was literally just at the time when Jason was born. And the missionary expeditions were with their Pentecostal church that is called the Abbot Loop Christian Center. This is that type of church, like I have found like a Facebook page for them. It is as like modern and like all cutesy little thing. So I was kind of creeped out by it. According to this article, though, this church was technically, you know, a denomination that can be seen as a cult that would target the people from the community and teach them how to beat obedience into their children without leaving signs that social services or police might be able to pick up on. Take this with a grain of salt, because as I mentioned, this is only one source that I have seen about this church and about apparently Jason retelling this story later on, but I couldn't find like any interviews or anything really coming from Jason directly. So, however, this divorce and separation happened, Jason's mom would remarry, and she would marry this guy called Larry Lee Fulton. This man would adopt Jason and his older brother Joel. What Jason was used to up until this point was church. It was prayers. It was going every single time when the church service was available, two or three times each week. 
And as he would say in the letter that he would write from prison, that I will be putting on the screen throughout this video, you can imagine the horror and confusion I experienced when this man who adopted me began using these late, late night prayer sessions to molest me. I think it's important for this story for me to include the extent of this abuse that Jason mentions in this letter. So I will now put a timestamp on the screen if you want to skip that part and it will be in the podcast player in the show notes if you want to skip and don't want to listen to that. Jason in the letter said that after his stepfather would walk into the room on the pretense that, you know, at first probably he thought it is a late night prayer, that he recalls that his stepdad would beat him with a custom-made belt. He recalls the handle with a wrapped tape that he would use to protect his own hands and holes drilled down the length of that device. The method that his stepdad used also stayed in Jason's head because apparently he preferred to use a two-handed grip and beat him between his butt and the back of his knees. Those beatings were quite frequent and some days Jason would say it would be difficult to even stand upright. Now, his older brother would get the beatings, but what Jason would do once he realized obviously what these night sessions were all about, he tried to protect Joel a lot of times. So Joel also started acting out. Remember, he was a few years older. I'm not really sure actually how much older he was, but Joel started running away from home. And because this was the Alaska and this was the 80s probably at this point, at best like early 90s, Joel actually got arrested as a runaway. And once he got arrested, well, he told the police that he doesn't want to go back there because their stepfather is abusing them. And as the part of that investigation, the mom is now taught about the abuse of her children. And she just refused to accept this as the reality. Even though it took so much for these kids to actually come forward and tell their mom what was going on. Not just that, but during that investigation, the church that they all belonged to actually hired an attorney to protect the stepdad. Because of this, because they would write, you know, the glowing personal statements of how this guy would have never, he's such a great member of the community, this encouraged in turn the kids to forgive their stepfather's abuse. So the stepdad would be found guilty, but he was just given a suspending sentence. So he didn't spend a single day in jail, meaning he was allowed to go back home and abuse both of those kids. In the letter, Jason would describe that after that, everything was just hell. Nobody actually checked up on them. Like, just picture that. You know you're returning the person that is literally harassing and beating these children up. And not just that, but it was hell because at some point, Jason and Joel actually got the judgment because they reported their stepdad. So... Everybody was telling them, you shouldn't have told anybody, you know, you should have just suffered in silence because that is what apparently you should do. So after the dad got suspended and got back home, immediately Jason was actually pulled out of school, meaning that he was now being homeschooled. So from the house in Anchorage, they decided to move the whole family to this place that is called Wasila. Here, 
the isolation was complete. From the letter, what I gather was that Jason was 13 or 14 when Joel first ran away. And at this point, he was 16 and he just couldn't take it anymore. He just didn't want to live like this and was starting to think about running away himself. One night, he finally decided to cut the cord. He's gonna go run away. According to the letter, he had like a couple of jobs. He was hardworking and he was doing that with the goal of saving up some money to actually avoid this toxic situation and get out. So one evening when everybody was asleep, he just climbed out of his bedroom window. But then he didn't take any belongings with him. So the next day he climbs back in to get his belongings, to get all of the clothes and everything. And he realizes that these fuckers, that his parents have actually put all of those belongings in the trash bags on the front porch. And obviously, like, his parents were there, like, were awake, realized what had happened, realized that this guy is trying to break away from this abusive household. So... They allowed him to keep whatever was in those trash bags, but they kept away his driver's license and the social security card. He would say, and this is Jason's words, so again, think of it as you wish, but he said his mom actually said that they didn't want to facilitate his flight into sin. Into sin, lady... (laughs) I have no respect. I have no respect for people who choose partners over their kids. I just have no fucking respect. Like, you living under the roof, like under the sinful ass roof, and you're like, no, 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 you're trying to escape this is sin. This meant that Jason did the only thing he could. He had only some money saved up, but he decided to take those bags, take some belongings at least, and he flew to Spokane in Washington. He found a job there easily, but then end of month came around and he didn't have his ID and he didn't have his social security number. So his employer couldn't pay him. And this is when the desperation kicked in. So under the pretense of just checking out a health club, you know, just like when you go in and you're like, oh, I'm going to see if this is suitable for me because I can definitely pay for it. He just went into the locker room, turning over some lockers. Because again, he was just desperate. He just didn't get paid because his parents are actually holding his freaking ID hostage. So he finds a wallet in one of those unlocked lockers with $1,000. And this is when his life of crime would officially begin. After that, it never stopped because he still couldn't get legally paid. So about five months after arriving to the Washington area, he would get arrested for theft and for forging checks. And this is when he would serve for the first time. At first, it would still be juvenile hall because he was still underage. But then, nine months later, he would get out and start committing similar kind of crimes. About this, in his letter, Jason would write, Being a thief and a liar fit nicely with my lack of self-worth, my silent understanding that I was worthless, a throwaway. The foundations laid in my youth never went away. They simply remained hidden, and everything I chose to do was built on those thoughts and feelings from the past. It's both odd and understandable for me at the same time that Jason is kind of able to reflect upon this, 
now that he has been arrested and everything, you know, that he is kind of middle-aged, right? I would say probably middle-aged. But, you know, obviously at the time, he probably couldn't. He says in the letter, he just relied on different things, whether it was pot, whether it was just, you know, going into clubs, trying to drown his sorrows. He would attempt to have regular jobs, but then he didn't have any support system. Sometimes he wouldn't be able to get paid. So he continually just chose to make some poor choices that cost him, well, his time. Because he would be, by the age of 20, spending half of his adult life in jail. Because at 18, he would end up getting arrested for driving without a license. According to him, this would happen about eight times over the next two or three years. And each time it would be a month or a few in prison. And sometimes, you know, the next time it is always longer than the last because you're technically building a rap sheet. And in the time that he would be spending outside of the jail, he would get some construction work. Sometimes he would either get laid off or he would again not be paid because of his social security card missing. And every time he was either laid off or he was to quit, he would not hesitate to steal in order to support himself. Now, speed up to him just moving around all these different areas. He said, like, he just didn't know what will happen tomorrow. And a lot of times... During the nights, he simply wanted to die. And then, 10 years before his crime spree had begun, so 2006, he decides to move back to Alaska. The reason, he says, was he wanted to start over and just go back to his home state, basically to regain his freedom, to be like, okay, this is not a part of me, I can actually go back to where I feel I belong and actually move on completely with my life. Everything was going well for a while, I'm not really sure what while is, but everything seemed to be on the up and up, until he loses yet another job now in Alaska. And here he decides again, by default, to just turn to crime. So he steals some credit cards, and this is when he will get caught and be sent to prison for the next six years. And after he was released from prison, he again just decides, okay, let's get another job, let's get into the grind again, you know, get the satisfaction from the small things in life. However, he violates his parole. I'm not sure what the crime here was, but he said he was arrested for eluding. Eluding is basically like trying to escape. So I'm not sure like was he actually caught like on the scene of the crime here. He was basically probably committing a very similar crime. Something to do with fraud or just stealing money, stealing credit cards, stealing something that he can then get money for. So here he gets sentenced yet again for three more years in prison. This will now mean that Vukovic had a criminal history in Washington, in Idaho, in Montana, California, and Oregon. And then, now, finally, in Alaska. Now, this next bit I have read in some articles. A lot of the articles here are literal copy-paste. So, again, I couldn't find the court documents myself. But according to the court documents, one of these offenses, at least, 
was about assault of his then wife. I couldn't find any details on the wife. I'm not sure if he was ever married. So again, this is just from the articles that I could find online. And the assault charge was apparently from 2008. Jason would deny abusing his wife and the two children that he had with her. And he would say that his wife and him had a couple of wrestling matches. In the one letter that I'm putting on screen throughout this video and throughout this telling of the story, he doesn't mention any of this. So, again, you can see it both ways. Why wouldn't he mention this but mention so many other offenses? Or rather, is he trying to aim at somebody from jail? Because this is a good time to tell you that from everything I have seen and from how he signs off on this letter, the letter has been written before his sentencing. So when he was in jail, after being arrested, you know, after attacking that last victim with a hammer, but before the sentencing. So yes, you can see how, you know, he is very open about all of his offenses, or you can see that he is deliberately taking some bits and pieces out of it. So, at this point in the story, Jason has spent his past nine years, give or take, inside of the jail. And according to one article, the crime spree started the day after he gets out of jail. That is only according to the article. According to his own letter, this takes us to the summer of 2016. He was out of jail, he was living simply taking joy and satisfaction in the basics. You know, go to the supermarket, do the grocery shopping, mow his lawn, and just trying to participate, like, in the community. You know, just try to adjust, like, have the small talk with the neighbors. And as he's just doing that, he started to hear things in the community. Just like rumors spreading around, you know, whenever he would have a small talk with somebody about their children, or like children in the community, getting abused by people who were in the positions of power or authority. How hearing something like this would be an immediate trigger for Jason. He said he felt the overwhelming desire to act. And this is when he started to take matters into his own hands. There was a clear flip switch. Immediately, he would go online, go on to the sex offender registry, and find people in the community that were on the sex offenders list. Let us back up and speak of each and every attack. So he would conduct three attacks in total before he would get caught. The first one apparently happened the day after he got out of jail. Again, according to him, he was adjusting in the society, so according to Jason, probably didn't happen the very next day. In my opinion, I don't think it happened the very next day because from everything I read, he had his notebook. Basically, you know, when he would be going through the sex offender registry online, he would be noting down the names and the addresses from the registry. I don't know does that include like any other planning, as in like walking down the streets, sort of planning how he's going to actually enter, you know, entry points, exit points from the victim's houses. But apparently there was a notebook and he would 
visit these homes of the free sex offenders in order to rob and then assault them. So one of the victims was convicted of raping his own daughter. According to Jason, this man was actually then taking care of the granddaughter. So of the daughter of the person that he had actually abused. And that's where I feel like, okay, I, either this is like pure coincidence or he must have known and actually scouted for these victims. The second victim of Jason's was convicted of molesting their 10-month-old granddaughter. And then the third one was a child pornographer. The prosecution would later say that in June of 2016, Jason would be walking around carrying a notebook containing a list of names. At that time, the list included Charles Elby, Andres Barbosa and Wesley Demaret. And then over the span of five days, he would enter the homes of each and every one of these victims. Of course, he wouldn't be welcome there. He would either do it at like the unsociable hours, usually during the night or like early mornings. He would hit them, sometimes with his own hands. Sometimes he would have a hammer on him. He would knock them unconscious and just beat the living shit out of them. And then steal some items, either a laptop, sometimes even a truck, and then just try to flee. Each and every one of the attacks included him saying that he is the avenging angel for the children that were hurt by the abusers and the victims of Jason's. So the first victim was Charles Elby who was 68 years old. This attack happened on June the 24th. And here Jason was brazen. He actually knocked on Charles's door. So once, you know, Charles kind of like peeked through the door, Jason pushed his way in and he ordered Charles to sit on his bed. After which he would just slap him across the face a few times and then told him how he found his address. And again asked him, does he know what he had done? After beating him up, he just dropped him and left. Next attack on Andres Barbosa occurs in an even weirder fucking way. This guy is 25 years old and he is a registered pedophile. Let us just remember that. So Vukovic here decides to actually go inside of the house at like 4 a.m., but he brings along two female accomplices. That is what they refer to in all of the articles. He then threatens Barbosa with a hammer, tells him to sit down, punches him in the face, and then warns him that he could bash his dome in. After which, he basically states he is there to collect what Barbosa has owed, and then one of the women is filming the incident on the cell phone, when Vukovic and the other one decide to beat him up, rob him, and just steal several items, including this guy's truck, and they flee the scene. Now, the third time, because with Demaret, again, he broke in the middle of the night, he thought he will not get caught. However, here you can see a clear escalation, you know, with the first two attacks, either he would be punching them with their fists, or the goal was more to, like, rob them. You know, like it was like knocking at the door, trying to rob them. Here with the Marette, he purely used the hammer and he just beat the living shit out of this guy. 
his MO was still the same. He would knock on the door all the way up until the person would like wake up, try to see what's going on. And then he would like just interrupt their whole night routine, go in, ask them to like sit down with the Maret. Apparently he said to them to get on their knees and this person refused. And then Jason just used the hammer and went at it at their face. He again said that he is an avenging angel going to meet the justice for the people that this person has hurt. Because of the items that he had stolen, this is when Jason will finally get caught. And when the police found him, he was sitting in the car with all of the stolen goods and a notebook with the addresses of the targets. I couldn't find it. He have a further list. Like, were there any other targets? Or was this literally just the extent that he would have gotten to? Which, again, would be useful to know when it comes to things like premeditation. But here we go into the aftermath of his arrest. By this point, you have probably formed an opinion yourself. And Jason, like so many people, will get a plea deal. He would agreed to plead guilty to first-degree attempted assault and a consolidated count of first-degree robbery. And in turn, the prosecution was to dismiss like a dozen charges, basically, that all occurred during those attacks. Now, Jason's own attorney said that this guy actually should have a different kind of sentence. Like, jail wouldn't do him much justice, which I partially agree with, partially. So, his attorney, called Amber Tilton, suggested correctional supervision for a very long time and for Jason to receive treatment for PTSD and, like, participate in this program for violent offenders. From what I have seen, PTSD was mentioned throughout his trial as, like, a possible consequence of what Jason went through when he was a child and then was mentioned later in the aftermath of it, but I couldn't see that he was actually, like, ever properly diagnosed. And that doesn't come as a surprise with, like, American healthcare system and also, like, the life that he was leading. So, again, not on me or you to, like, make a decision. Just wanted to mention that because it is used heavily from this point on and rather, like, after his conviction and, like, throughout his appeals. Whereas, you know... I don't know if they have really used it as much as they probably should have when it comes to Jason's trial. But according to his attorney and many, many people online, Jason had already been punished. The whole thing started out as the punishment of a child who didn't deserve to be treated in that way. His lawyer said because he didn't have the opportunity to address his childhood issues, he resulted in coping with anger in this way. The cycle will continue in society, not just for Mr. Vukovic, but for others if he can't do something to stop it. But when it comes to the judge in court, he wouldn't accept vigilantism himself. After the letter was written and once Jason appeared in court, the Superior Court Judge Erin Marston handed down his sentence. 25 years in prison for Jason, which is five years fewer than the maximum. And he then also sentenced him to five years of probation, saying vigilantism is not something that we accept in America. It's not something that we accept in this community. 
and it is just simply something that will not be tolerated. It was not the purpose of the registry to allow people to do their own brand of justice. The purpose of the registry was to keep the community safe. As for Jason's victim, Demaret, he said that he had lost his job, he had suffered huge consequences because of this beating, he couldn't pay up on the mortgage, etc., etc., and that he would feel safer knowing that Jason will never be out of prison. And as for Jason himself, at least according to this letter that apparently was written before the sentencing date, he wants his crimes to serve as a deterrent for people to talk it out and to learn from his own mistakes. He would say, please do not act out like I did. Cherish your own life and freedom. Learn from my story and seek peace, not retribution. If you hear of someone abusing children in your neighborhood or if you want to take matters into your own hands, please call someone who loves you and talk it out. He ends the letter saying there is no place for vigilante justice in an ordered society and I want to deter others that find themselves in a similar position. I urge anyone who reads this to engage in the proper channels to effect positive change. Do not glamorize my actions. Believe me when I say there is nothing glamorous about my life now. So to break that down, I find it so bizarre that he said there's no place for vigilante justice and then the judge when sentencing him said something really, really similar. You have to think about when it comes to these letters whether or not he's trying to manipulate at least a bit, like twist the story in such a way that will suit him in the court of law because he is still to be sentenced. And even in the letter he is saying he will accept a fair sentence that the judge imposes, etc, etc. But like there is a bit of it where you kind of have to believe like of course he's not going to present himself as the worst villain in the universe. I'd like to know what you think, especially when you hear this next part of the story. So, back in the court, just before he was to be sentenced, his brother actually testifies. So, Joel, his brother, tells the judge about the trauma that they have both suffered. And he describes very similar things that we have already heard from Jason. That they would be bunk beds in the room... And that sometimes, you know, they would just roll over and they would be up against the wall. That he couldn't look at his brother and the brother couldn't look back at him. Sometimes, you know, they try to prevent the stepdad from abusing the other one. But Joel would say it was always his job to go first so that the stepdad would leave Jason alone. Now, the interesting part about this is that Joel after this abuse, would go to study at a college, would get a PhD. He, at the time of the sentencing, lived in California, had a family, had a good job as the CIO. It's like basically like a chief security officer at this data company. He received counseling, so like chose a completely different pathway from his brother, dealt with trauma, and just seemed to have moved on in a very healthy, nurturing way. And Joel, even during this trial, asked the judge to have mercy on him, to help him out, to basically get him the counseling and the help that he needed. 
rather than just put him into the system. Like he said, we aren't friends. Like we lost touch completely after this. But, you know, just still try to have some mercy on him. As I mentioned, Jason was sentenced to 23 years. Well, first 28 and then five were suspended and he got to serve them on probation. But in my opinion, this would be a good point to stop for a breather before we just discuss the appeals and then the possible motivations behind his acts. Because these, for me, are the points of controversy when it comes to this vigilante story. The first point of contention for me is where does it stop? Like, you can see, yes, he's cleansing the world. That's the thing, because like... I would feel like you would have different opinions if he was actually killing the sex offenders. I'm not saying that would be better or anything like that. But I feel like people would have different opinions if it was actually like, you know, him being a pedophile hunter, cleansing the world of these people versus like actually just beating them up, which will in turn make him serve some time for those actions and these people would probably eventually recover. But still... Where does it stop? Where do you draw the line? Like how many people is enough people for you to feel like some part of your soul has been, I don't know, solved, some part of your trauma has been healed? Then once done with all of the pedophiles, all of the sex offenders, who is next? Like let because that's how do you rationalize it? How many people are enough people? And then again, let's say you exterminate the world of everybody, of every single person that has ever done wrong and has ever assaulted, molested little children. Who is next? And then how do you deem that? Then who is to say that even though, yes, he's mentioning in the letter, don't glamorize this, you know, I don't support this. Well, why wouldn't other people feel motivated to do the same thing? Because... As we know, sex registry in the US is an open list. Everybody can go in there, see the pictures of them, see their address, find these people. And then who is to say that this isn't going to actually start up a movement? And that just nobody would rely on the official resources, on the police to do their own work. But why I mentioned Joel in particular is exactly for people to think about all of the victims, like other victims in this case, in many other cases, who move on with their life and don't resort to violence. Like, are we saying that there is a wrong and a right way to move on? Because I don't think we can be saying that both Jason and Joel have correctly moved on with their life. I think we can understand that Jason wouldn't have had the same resources to get the counseling, to actually move on. But then, again, if you think about it, why not? Like, why not? Why wasn't he wired in that way? Why wouldn't he be able to then just, like Joel, keep his jobs and like try to move on? Yes, maybe it is luck. Maybe it is simply the way that these two individuals have different mentalities, the level of abuse as well, the amount of abuse that each and every one of them has endured. But I don't think we can be saying that both ways are the correct ways to be moving forward. Because like with another famous case that comes to mind, 
as I'm talking about this one, the case of the Menendez brothers, when do you stop being a victim? Because, you know, like you rob a store, okay, like you are still a victim because of something that happened in your childhood and that is what you are acting upon. That is the impulse you're acting upon. So then does that apply to the other extent? If he was to have committed murders, is he still to be seen only as a victim? It is that twofold thing that we can't be saying in the same breath that like Joel moved on correctly and Jason moved on correctly. And you know, one of them has literally had a life of crime while the other just like moved on and like didn't resort to violence. Because then does that mean that Joel is living his life in the wrong way? Because like if we are glorifying one end of the spectrum, like why are we not mentioning the other end and in the same vein yes you can see what jason and joel both of them have gone through that they were victims up until a certain point but then they made a choice not to be that they made that choice and sort of one of them yes was strong enough to move in a completely different direction but the other one as well like kind of chose to be seen as a victim for the rest of their life instead even in that letter to the judge they have a knowledge that they still are a victim what they have gone through and that that is why they have acted in such a way but you know what actions are justified for you to commit and still be seen as just this person who is a victim your whole life like yes you're acting because of that but like what level of violence are we then justifying i don't know call me crazy but like there's so many controversial points in this one and that's the one where i'm just like stuck because if he could meet it anything and he was still like well i was abused as a child but like certain things don't make sense like if he actually beat his wife at some point in his past and then this is sort of the quote-unquote excuse or the impulse that he's using well, that then doesn't make sense, does it? Because if you went for assault and now you're assaulting, I don't know, the math just ain't mouthing. The same when it comes to murder or just forging cards, forging checks. Can you really play the victim card in all of those instances? Jason actually stood trial at the same courtroom as his stepfather, which is just such a weird, weird thing. And his stepfather, as we know, didn't serve a day in prison while Vukovic was sentenced to... 28 years that was reduced to 23 and the last point of contention for so many people is that and also all of these sex offenders have not served that much time in jail at best it was probably a couple of years sometimes a couple of months and they're out they're just out without the justice for their victims being served In 2020, Jason would appeal on the basis of him suffering from PTSD and that he is largely the product of this untreated condition. But the Court of Appeals reaffirmed the sentence, so they didn't like deduce any time off of it, saying that they conclude that the sentence imposed is not clearly mistaken. From what I have seen from the articles on the appeal, both his lawyer and Jason himself just want some sort of rehabilitation. So just at least, you know, 
show the intent, like put him through some sort of counseling, through some sort of therapy, and yes, possibly take some years off of his sentence because they do think that it is excessive. And there are other, there are like petitions online. I have definitely seen one with about 25,000 signatures directed at Trump at the time. So I'm not sure like how that works now, as in who is that even addressed to, like if it reaches the amount of signatures that is needed. I will link it below if you do want to submit your signature. It is on change.org. And what do you think about it? Like, would it make a change? Like, would, I don't know, the governors, the mayors of certain states, well, or rather whatever state he is in, like, would that make any sort of movement? Would it speak volumes if people actually speak up about him getting released, about him and his sentence being reduced because of his history? I don't know. You let me know. But that is the story of Jason Vukovic. Minus the motives that we are about to discuss now, because I have been mentioning throughout the past two vigilante cases that I did want to speak about a pedophile hunter, quote unquote. And usually the articles on one such niche are based in the UK. Pedophile hunters as a term usually has a negative connotation because it is kind of like the online community that uses these deceptive techniques to get people to fess up. Because again, UK you know doesn't have the sex registry as the US does. So this information isn't readily available online. So sometimes people impose themselves in these investigations, usually not telling the police, and that results in wasting so many police hours and resources at times because they engage in these citizen-led policing and they believe that they can track these people down online. When they do it here, at least it is regarded as this public perception of these people as the force for good, because they're fighting against child sex offenses. As we have really seen in the case that we are speaking about today of Jason Vukovic, yes, you can see possibly the appeal in that. You know, the justice hasn't been served the first time. These people are clearly living in the neighborhood that has kids in them. Yes, their name and address is publicly available online, but nobody's really doing anything about it. So he is taking justice into his own hands, deciding on the sentence that they might deserve. But then, if pedophile hunters in this case are perceived by the public to be doing something, quote-unquote, doing anything about preventing child sexual abuse, that then, yes, defies the police work to a certain extent. Like The other end of that spectrum is that then there's a danger for policymakers, for practitioners, for people in the police force, and then the public mood. Because who is to say that the public isn't going to start a movement, that there's not going to be a switch where then those groups, those offenses are going to be treated differently, where then other people might want to sort of apply their own version of justice, unite and then beat a bunch of pedophiles on the street, I don't know, cause a mess, havoc, just because they see that sentence deemed to be fit. Personally, we know why Jason did it. 
because of the imprint that his past left on him when he was a child. But just like with Bernie Getz, with the Subway Vigilante and Marianne Bachmeier that we spoke about two months in the past, you know, in January and February, we can see certain patterns of these types of vigilantes. So when we take them out of the pedophile, so when we take Jason out of the pedophile hunter box, you see the same thing of enforcing beliefs and behavior without seeing the bigger picture, without seeing this effect, without thinking about the consequences. Even though this guy had spent a long time in jail, and here I mean, yes, consequences for him, but also consequences for how the society is going to see this. Because in the letter he said he doesn't want this glorified. He doesn't want people to follow his footsteps. So you have to wonder, is it simply just him acting on his own impulses and not being able to see this rationally and not being able to stop himself? And also the bigger picture here for me includes him hurting three people or however many people, if that list had again 100 sex offenders, will not stop pedophilia. It will not stop this type of crime worldwide. So you can see people, you know, who are usually closed-minded, as we have discussed with social vigilantes, who usually decide to play God, decide that their own justice is the way forward, but don't see that maybe the scope of it won't reach as many people as maybe his brother and the way he had chosen to live his life will. With social vigilantism, usually there is a case of everything we have spoken about, like enforcing beliefs, believing that you are the one driving the narrative, the closed-mindedness, control over people to a certain degree, lack of perspective, all of that. But then there is always, in every single one of these stories, that feeling of being either victimized or marginalized. And you can see that in Jason's story, because even his appeals aim at his PTSD. And that isn't something that he has really mentioned beyond like his trial stage and then the appeal stage. So when making your decision, that should also be taken into consideration. How many times did Jason try to play the victim card? Try to at least mention that he was the victim so many times, so many times in his past. And whether that was to influence the sentencing, whether that was to a degree at least to influence the judge and his opinion, or whether this is 100% honest account of events. But that is all I have for this story today. And now you're going into your next Zoom call. And uh, is your working situation hybrid? This is the new term that they have introduced. Even the roles on LinkedIn that you can see now, you know, when you're super happy at your job and you're definitely not looking elsewhere, uh, stay hybrid, you know. It's like not even like in the office, no more working from home. There's the new term in town. It is hybrid. And you're fighting your head of department on the stance that they didn't have before, but now suddenly they have, of going back into the office full time so that you can have your peace, okay? So that you can be like, yeah, listen, 
I'm not gonna be an island. I'll come in twice a week, okay? Put me down on these days, motherfuckers. Or also, did your peace make your life super boring now? You know? <laughs> it's like I found your, my peace now. But my life is literally like me not getting out of my comfort zone ever. Do you also communicate through TikTok references that nobody understands? But very niche amount of people. And those people are your immediate best friends. Well, then... You might not have friends. <laughs> Just know. We, you and me, right now, you and me, we're the cyber friends for life. And in knowing your peace, <laughs> and in knowing what your comfort zone is, and exactly how to avoid ever getting out of it, you do what? <laughs> you keep making this world a better place. One one motive, one motive, yeah, one podcast episode and one motive at the time. That made absolutely zero sense. One hundred percent zero sense. Yeah. Math ain't nothing today, is it my is it? Let's just get out of here. Like it's Monday, listen. <laughs> Go through your Monday pondering on vigilantism and tell me what to talk about next. Huh? How about you do that? You're not the boss of them. Even their boss is not the boss of them. That it was the whole purpose for this outro. That they are choosing the way of life that is called hybrid. Oh, that was the purpose of it? <laughs> I think we got lost in translation, you know? Just like a Taylor Swift song. Get the fuck out. Keep making this world a better place. <laughs> One motive at a time. Bye, fuckers. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.